Psalm 348 has been announced, and we'll certainly look forward to using that at the proper time in the lesson today. It is certainly a blessing that we each have been given to assemble and to gather our regular membership at Pippin. Always good that we have been blessed with that opportunity. And certainly our visitors who too have come our way this day, as is often the case. And we're so thankful again for your presence. And it's our hope that all of us can be encouraged, edified, and built up as we have been present at this worship service assembly today. If I might take just a moment to make an additional announcement. I did not share this with Lester just a moment ago, but I've been invited to be a part of a couple of vacation Bible schools throughout this week, and I feel sure that the brethren at those locations would be delighted to have you come and be with them during the course of these studies and these vacation Bible school efforts. Tomorrow evening, the Spencer Church of Christ over in Van Buren County is having a VBS starting at 6.30 p.m., and uh, I've been invited to be a part of that, and so I would like to extend an invitation to you as well on their behalf, if you can, to come be with us. Brother R.C. Christian leads the singing there and does a tremendous job at that. I know you'd be blessed just for the opportunity to sing songs with those brethren there, if at all, that you can come. Thursday evening of this week, the Montrose Congregation over in Smith County, over near Defeated Creek, is also engaging in a VBS. That's the closing night of that one. I'm sure any of the nights that they'd be delighted to have you. I'll be speaking there that night to the adult class. So again, an invitation extended to you if you can come and be with those good brethren at those locations. I have addresses for each, for each of them, so if you're interested, just uh, feel free to ask me. I'll be happy to, to share that with you. Uh, perhaps the one at Spencer would be the more challenging to find. It's uh, 409 Church Street in Spencer, so if you have a GPS, you could just put that in, and it likely would take you right to the building. At this point, as we come to a consideration of the lesson this morning, two words will come before us, the words eternal and also the word everlasting. Maybe some introductory thoughts would lead us in the direction to which it seems the Word of God calls us to never forget the might the majesty, and the thorough character of words like these. We're all aware that the English language is filled with words. In fact, by almost any reckoning, there's well over a million words in the English language. And yet of those words, some of them are so very powerful. The very mention of them brings before you and me a whole host of mental images, perhaps times of responses and reflection. I've listed a few of them there on the slide. It still is true that by and large the word love is very prominent and powerful. We all can appreciate that overwhelming sense that completes one when you hear someone say, I love you, perhaps as he proposes marriage, and perhaps as a wedding takes place not too many months in the future. Another word that carries with it such weight but in a negative way is the word cancer. Think about how you react if maybe you have heard a doctor tell you that or if a doctor has told a close family member or maybe you've often attended the doctor not knowing what's happening, just fearful that that's what he's going to say. We've just passed the 4th of July and still in the mind of so many words like freedom, liberty, those words still mean so very much and ever we see the flag waving. To those who are patriotic in spirit, it does bring a great sense of power. I say all of that to say it's also true that some words can lose their emphasis. Think about the word forever. We use that word so often now that quite frankly the word typically does not carry the same force with which it once did. 
For we understand that forever is often used in a figurative way just to mean something that lasts a reasonably long time, but nowhere near forever. But that's not literally what that word originally meant. Another word is awesome. That word, we overuse it so much, it's rather pathetic. That word originally meant to do and had relation to expressing awe and veneration and reverence to one, namely God. And now we use the word basically just to mean something that excites us in a good way. Kind of interesting to notice then how these words can change in their significance and in their usage. The bulletin article that Brother Glenn shared with us a week ago today had ended a number of additional ones, not the least of which was that word gay. There was a time that that was such a happy term. Many songs, in fact, made listing of circumstances and instances in which a person was made gay. That is to say, happy. That is to say, excited about something. Of course, in the years since, that word has been borrowed by the homosexual community, and now the word can't ever be used, it seems, without that significance. Two other words, though, that often are words that still fall into heading that we can lose its significance are these. Words like everlasting. Words like eternal. Those two are words we ought never forget the meaning of them as the Bible uses them. And so I would invite you to take a journey with me, a study over the next few moments this morning as we revisit the Bible's usage of terms like those and set again in our mind the power, the might, and the overwhelming truths embedded in those words. It might be fair to begin an initial consideration in the following way. Let's make some notes about those words. Basics to circumstances relative to their appearance. As you can see on this slide, I've tried to highlight the number of times that these particular words or some form of them occur. That word eternal, for example, 47 times that word or some form of it, such as eternally, that, will, that word occurs in the King James Version of the Holy Bible. By the same token, some 97 times the word everlasting, or again some form of it, occurs in the sacred scriptures in the King James Version of the Bible. And some of the occurrences of those words are incredibly mindful. Namely these, sometimes they are used with, re with reference to God Himself. For instance, we well can recollect, can't we, in 1 Timothy 1 verse 17, as the Apostle Paul lifted high the thinking of Timothy on that occasion and ours as well by inspiration. It was on that occasion he said, Now unto our King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. You'll notice Paul, as he referred to our King, called him eternal. Notice that has in it then the very idea of reference with respect to something about our King. Earlier in the Old Testament in Psalm 90, verse number 2, David, the inspired psalmist on that occasion, brings us to this appreciation. As he was speaking about the great God of heaven, he said, Forever the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. Notice the word was used twice in that one verse with respect to God Himself. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. That's just a sampling of a few of the references made, of course, to God in which these words occur. There are other times, though, which will occupy much of our study this morning, in which these words are used with respect to the human family, like you and me. 
I've listed again just a small sampling of the verses. Maybe that golden text of the Bible has already raced in your mind and mine. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. John chapter 3, verse 16. On that occasion, the statement was not with respect to God. It was with respect to individuals that they may have everlasting life. In the book of 1 John, in 1 John 2, 25, in a rather brief verse, it says, This is the promise that He hath promised us, even eternal life. The God of heaven has set forth a promise, and a marvelous one at that, and it involves eternal life. Three chapters later, in 1 John 5, verse 11, This is the record that He hath recorded, namely eternal life. Maybe those things have embedded in us enough of a curiosity to wonder about some additional usages of those terms and some impressive conclusions that might be drawn from them. Clear enough, isn't it, that this word eternal or this word everlasting has reference to something that has no end. It does not reach a ceasing point. It does not reach a point of cessation or stopping. It proceeds onward without ever ending. It is for that reason you can notice that the Bible is quick to say that this eternal life, this continued existence, can be blissful and joyous and positive on the one hand, or as we shall soon readily discover, it can be incredibly negative, agonizing and horrible. But either way, it is existence that continues onward. For that reason, at the bottom of that slide, the lesson text that was read for us earlier today, Lucas read the closing verse of Matthew chapter 25. That was in the midst of the Lord's answer to some questions that had been asked of Him. Lord, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of Thy coming and of the end of the world? Matthew 24, 3. And the Lord took two entire chapters to answer that set of questions. And as He made description of the end of the world, the end of time, and His coming... He told these parables. He told these descriptive records. That one, verses 31 on to verse 46, involves, of course, that day of judgment. And the closing statement is this. These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And there we have it. The two usages, both of them in the same verse... And why don't we give thought for the remainder of our lesson to the thrust of those, of those two. And might we begin by challenging ourselves with a section I've entitled Human Incapability. We each struggle with the following observations. I have no question about making that statement. You and I, from the moment that we appreciate anything, it seems we are well aware of the fact that there is this entity known as time. That began with God. In fact, in the opening verse in all of the Bible, Genesis 1 verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You'll notice the word beginning is there and employed. It is a statement that this was the initial moments, the time when, in fact, time had its, origina its origination, its beginning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That beginning brings us to readily recognize some of the following things. Time as we know it is rather simply an idea that is this. 
It is an appreciation in which it makes reference to a duration. It marks an interval. Time is no more profound or rich than that. Inasmuch as it marks this interval, as it marks a particular duration, you know that you and I are well appreciative and we well acknowledge that truth. Think about for a moment all of the particular time measurements that you and I use. Seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years. And to those we can also add decades, centuries, millennia, and on and on the list seems to go. And scientists, of course, now have at their disposal devices that allow much smaller increments of time like milliseconds, microseconds, nanoseconds, and even others. The point again then is made is this. Time is a very strong and powerful part of what you and I recognize on a regular, ongoing basis. But you'll notice all those statements about time do prompt us to ponder that the passing of time is a very intriguing thing, isn't it? Isn't it true that there are times, occasions if you please, when the passage of a certain element of time can seem so rapid and swift? But on other occasions, that same amount of duration or interval seems to pass so slowly. Perhaps when you are commanded as a child to do something that's not particularly pleasant, it may seem as if the morning will never pass. But on the other hand, when something is fun and enjoyable, it may seem as if it passes so very swiftly. Sometimes, as you and I give recollection to those interesting observations, isn't it true that those chores or tasks that you and I are given frequently are such that they are strongly part of this very interesting sensation of the passage of time. I can well recall myself as a youngster when you have been told to work a very long row in the garden, it may seem as if the end of the row is never going to come. It seems as if the toilsome labor involved in it makes the end of that row seem farther and farther away. But of course, finally, you do make it to the end. And finally, you are able to proceed on to the other events and activities of the day. But it's just that for that while, it seems as if time passes a bit more slowly. What's more, you can also think about those times that are so happy when it seems as if the minutes rush past. I'm sure we've each experienced a whole host of those distinctions. But one thing does seem to be very much true in terms of the human family. We all seem to develop a sense that we could endure no matter what the time frame or interval may bring us. As I mentioned before, the end of that row, though it may seem far away and the moments may be unpleasant, we know we can endure it and we know that we shall arrive at the end if we will but continue onward and persevere. By the same token, to sit at the bedside of a sick relative or friend, those moments in the hospital may seem like days, but yet you do know that upon perseverance and endurance, you will, you will survive. May I say to you that that mentality is dangerous. For if we carry that over to eternity, and words like eternal, it does us a great disservice. In fact, we're going to develop that thought more like this, but here's the danger. 
You and I live in this consideration of time, this interval, this duration. But ponder for a moment, if it's at all possible, about time unlimited. Duration that has no end. Cessation that is not to be known at all. It's a struggle, isn't it? Isn't it difficult to imagine something that has no end? I've had my share, for instance, of unpleasant things like kidney stones. Minutes can literally seem like days when you're having one of those things. But may I say, even at its worst, I still understand that I can endure and make it into the end and the stone will find a place where it's a bit easier or it will pass. But think with me about agony that has no end. Unpleasantness of the highest order that knows no bound. That's what we wrestle with with these words like eternity, everlasting and eternal. And yet that's how the Bible uses them. Describing things that are terribly agonizing but that they have no end. As we investigate those more fully, may we be quick to say that even science is quick to remind us that this world, as near as we can tell itself, is bound by time in such a fashion that it is not eternal. But thankfully, the Word of God unfolds before us some powerful truths, and it is to them that let's turn in our Holy Scriptures and look at some passages like these. What then did Jesus say when He made reference to everlasting life in John 3.16? What did John mean when He made reference to life eternal in 1 John 2.25? It's clear that here's an existence that truly goes on and on. You know, as we'd mentioned these two possibilities earlier, one of them was everlasting punishment. That's the word that Lucas read. The other was eternal life. Again, in Matthew 25, verse 46. It is to that verse that might I ask you to think about first the punishment side. That's the one the Lord mentioned first. Earlier in that particular section of Scripture, Jesus had made statement that all nations, in verse 32, would be gathered before Him. And as they were gathered, we notice very powerfully that there was a separation, those on the right and those on the left. To those on the left, the Lord made an initial address to them. They were found unworthy. They were found inadequate. They had not done the Lord's bidding. They had failed in their obedience. And you'll notice that they were consigned to a place of everlasting punishment. The word punishment alone brings up rather unpleasant memories, doesn't it? You recall your dad or your mother punishing you when you acted up? Do you recall instances or scenes when you acted in a way you ought not? You disobeyed them and you paid a price for that behavior? Those were not pleasant moments. In fact, that kind of punishment when Dad, in fact, was letting that particular matter come before me, it was by no means pleasant. I'm glad he did it. It was for my betterment. I needed to be reproved and reprimanded. I'm sure many of you feel the same about your own punishments. But might we say at the moment it wasn't fun in the slightest. Perhaps in light of that, what did the Lord then say as He made reference to everlasting punishment? That duration when Dad was angry with me and punishing me, that lasted for a few moments. Perhaps it lasted for a while if it involved a grounding of some sort. But suffice it to say, those moments have now passed. But Jesus spoke about a punishment that would not pass. 
a punishment that would not end, a punishment that would go on and on. Surely we'd want to be aware of what would bring that kind of behavior so that we could avoid it, so that we could never, in fact, live in a way that would bring it. You'll notice in these verses that temporary kind of punishment with which we're accustomed in the flesh stands so opposed to this. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power? To borrow the words of 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7, 8, and 9. Here we find an occasion in which in vengeance the Lord Himself will appear. And as He does so, there will be a flaming fire that will come along with Him and those angelic visitors. And in so doing, it will be a time to wreak vengeance on those who don't know God and have not obeyed the gospel. Punished with everlasting destruction. That word destruction does not mean they will cease to exist. It doesn't mean that they by some means will become unconscious and will not feel it. That word destruction is used to describe the totality of the location which they are and the full distance that they shall then be from God. It is a time of frightful destruction. But you'll notice again Jesus said it's everlasting. May I submit to you as bad as things seem to be in this life, we always seem to believe that we can endure it. Like those kidney stones I mentioned earlier. Get through ten minutes of it, a half hour maybe, and at least there's some ease. Take a medicine of some kind and at least there's some ease. There will never be any ease when it comes to hell. Never. Ever will there be any ease, any reduction, any diminution, any cessation any change in any sense to make it better. The very thought of hell ought to make all of us shudder. It ought to make us cringe. We ought to tremble in the mere thought of it because, again, it has no end. For those reasons, look at perhaps an analogy. We know that this place called hell is identified and described in language that is very graphic and very vivid and very dramatic Language such as Mark chapter 9, to which we'll turn in just a moment. But we notice in verse 48 of that chapter description, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. There seems to be a correspondence, and a very strong one at that, between fire and hell. Often brimstone, burning with fire and brimstone is mentioned in the Revelation, isn't it? And yet, as we think about that nature of burning, isn't it true things you and I see that burn, they burn up or they burn down, as the case may be. But you may recall there was a burning bush in Moses' day. As the God of heaven appeared before him in the nature and stature of that burning bush, Moses even himself recognized easily that the bush was on fire, but it was not consumed it would appear that something like that will be descriptive of those spiritual bodies that will inhabit hell. They will be raging and burning, but they will not be consumed. They will rage onward forever and forever and ever in the everlasting fires of a place called Gehenna Hell. It is rather interesting that the closest that the Bible writers appear to have been able to come as it describes that place is the very word I have there at the top, Gehenna. 
In the original language, that Greek text, that word, of course, draws its ultimate meaning from the valley of Hinnom, H-I-N-N-O-M. That valley was well, was well known to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It was well known to the people who lived in the environs of Palestine, specifically in terms of Jerusalem. As we've often noted in Bible study classes or otherwise, this valley was situated just south of the city, and it was the place that was the garbage dump of Jerusalem. The refuse, the particular trash or other things in the city that needed to be discarded, that's where it was taken. We perhaps would recognize that was long before the days of landfills or things like that. The Valley of Hinnom was the landfill for the, for the city of Jerusalem. It was the place where the garbage was taken. And may we also say, it was the place in which carcasses, corpses, and things like that, like dead animals and otherwise. They were taken, cast into this valley. What's more, in order to consume all that trash and all that garbage and all of those things, they would keep fires lit in that valley. And it would burn up the things that were cast in it. You can well imagine that when those carcasses were thrown in there, we all know how putrid the smell is of a burning corpse. We know what that's like, and yet think about as this valley was situated. What if the wind blew from the south? Then folks in Jerusalem could smell that burning. When Jesus described it like the fire is not quenched, they kept those fires raging continually to consume the trash and the garbage. The Lord likened Gehenna as close as He could to that. He says, I'm telling you, there is a place. There is a place where the fire is not quenched. It never goes out. And he wasn't talking about the valley of Hinnom. He was talking about this place called Gehenna. Let it be noted that there certainly is the case from 1 Corinthians 15. You and I, every individual, will have a spiritual body. When the time comes that we pass from the fleshly scenes of this life, we know that that spirit departs the body, James 2.26, but on that morning of resurrection, when our Savior returns a second time, all will be given a spiritual body. It'll be a body that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 57, is incorruptible. That means it'll never be destroyed in the sense it'll go out of existence. It will be prepared for eternity. And for those not ready to meet the Lord, their spiritual body will know the fires of an eternal hell forevermore. The pain will never cease. The agony will never be diminished. The awfulness of the moment will never know any respite. Isn't that frightening? And yet the Lord said that's everlasting punishment. Isn't it then sobering to think about the bottom set of statements? There is no sin. There is no sin no matter how pleasurable for the moment it may be, that ought to make one consider it worthwhile to trade it for an eternity in hell. That's just the way it is, isn't it? None of us ought to be willing to make a bargain like that. Our soul ought to mean more to us than that, for we know it's headed for eternity. The very bottom statement on that slide then presents to you and me a whole host of warnings. In passing, notice Mark 3.29 Jesus said there is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And He said those who are guilty of that will receive eternal damnation. Again, damnation that will never end. 
That text in Jude, verses 6 and 7, one chapter book near the close of the New Testament, Jude makes reference to the fact that they of Sodom and Gomorrah, on which God rained fire and brimstone back in the days of Genesis 19, he said, they are for us, given the fact they now suffer eternal vengeance, they ought to serve as our examples of what not to do. Eternal vengeance. Maybe one last example in Matthew 25, 41 this very place of Gehenna to which we've turned our attention earlier. On that occasion, as Jesus again made reference to those on His left, those who were not prepared, those who had been disobedient, it was to them, He said, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus, that was Him speaking. That isn't just me. That's not just any gospel preacher today. We aren't just speaking opinion, are we? The Lord Himself said there is a place of everlasting fire. There is a place of cursed location. There is a place prepared for the devil and his angels. All that being said, how frightful then is this consideration of Gehenna. Maybe it's time to brighten the mood for just a moment. What about the other part of Matthew 25, 46? Not only did the Lord mention everlasting punishment, He also mentioned eternal life. Here's a slide that I would invite us to consider relative to that one. As bad, as unpleasant, as uncomfortable, as atrociously agonizing as hell is, on the other side of that coin, the pendulum swinging far the other direction, we have a place called heaven. It is a place of indescribable beauty, unfathomable comfort, a place of joyous occupation. Here are some thoughts about it. Jesus Himself said it, didn't He? A place of eternal life. The word life means to live. The word life has reference to the fullest self-expression of one's existence. It is in this place called heaven we shall experience the fullest self-expression of existence. All the things that we're lacking here, we shall have there. All the perfection that we lacked here, we'll know there. All the character that was, the befitting discomforts here, will not be present there. This is a place called heaven. And you'll notice in Revelation 21, we learn that the Father, the Son, and Spirit are all there in fullness of character. And you and I can enjoy absolute presence with them throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. This place called heaven, then, that we've described so far, perhaps those last two chapters of Revelation will heighten their appreciation. You recall with me the movement of that book. It is a rather dramatic play in many ways. One by one as the seals are opened, one by one as the difficulties on the human family come and go, we find one last event in Revelation chapter 20. We find the devil and his angels are cast into that pit, that lake burning with fire and brimstone. And not just them, but all the false prophets and all those that follow them and all the disobedient throughout all the ages are cast into this place. At that point, what's left? Who's left? Only the righteous. Only the faithful. Only the obedient. That brings us to the last two chapters in the Bible. These are ushered into a place where there is no pain, no sorrow, no crying, no difficulties in any way. Revelation 21 verses 4 and 8. 
Furthermore, we notice there's ample place here for everything that these righteous and faithful shall ever need. It's described as the blessed city, 12,000 furlongs on a cubit. In fact, as that's presented in Revelation 21, we find the glorious reality that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself is there as well as the Father. They provide all the light that will ever be needed. The temple, of course, won't be needed either. That temple was the closest the Old Testament folks could come to the very nature of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on it. Now these, are the righteous, are in the very presence of God. They don't need some physical edifice to bring them close to God. They're right with Him. And so it is in Revelation. We find that there's nothing that defiles in this place. Furthermore, in Revelation 22, they have access to the tree of life. What was lost in Adam, they have now have gained through Jesus. When Adam partook of the forbidden fruit, bringing sin on the human family, he was separated from God, cursed by virtue of physical death. Through Christ, we have access again to the tree of life. We can eat thereof from the fruits, and it bears fruit every month all year long. Revelation 22, verses 3 through 5. Notice again, there's never a time this place will cease. Never a time that its joys won't be abundant. Never a time when the difficulties will mar and tarnish it. It'll be ceaseless joy, unending praise. You'll notice in light of all of that, may we again say, no sin no matter how pleasurable for the moment it may be, is worth trading a single second, if you can call it so, in heaven. Heaven is that glorious. It is that fantastic. It is that beautiful. It is with all those in mind that the closing statements teach us and urge us so often. John 6 verse 68, Peter said, Thou hast the words, Jesus, of eternal life. Are you and I following His words then so that heaven can be our eternal home and we can avoid hell? Another passage in Romans 2 verse 7, To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for honor and glory and immortality, eternal life. Are you seeking for glory and honor and immortality? Then eternal life is the reward promised by the God of heaven. In Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Maybe finally, in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1, a remarkably poetic passage in the New Testament. Paul said, For if the earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Are you and I then seeking day by day for that eternity in the heavens? Because God assures us through His Word that eternity in the other place is far too miserable to fathom, far too terrible to contemplate, and far too sad to even imagine spending a single momentary fleeting second in it. We're warned, are we not, in Luke chapter 16 about a rich man who found himself with his eyes lifted up in torment. He found himself in a place far worse than he ever could imagine. So bad was it that he pleaded for Lazarus to be able to just come and cool his tongue. And that cooling would only last for a moment, but that was not to be, and it could not be, and it shall never be. May we be quick to say that any individual who is then cast 
sin into this place will never know any peace. My friend, I hope today that if you are not right with the God of heaven, make it so. Allow the blood of Christ to cleanse you from sin. And as we close this lesson, these are the main thoughts we've discussed. The Bible does use these words like eternal and everlasting, and it uses them with respect not just to God, but to you and me. You and I, as immortal spirits, will never cease to be, and it's guaranteed that every one of us will spend an eternity either in heaven or in hell. But the decision is left to you and me. It's determined by how you and I live day by day. It's determined by whether or not we are obedient to the gospel call of invitation and whether we live faithfully until death. And so the question then must be very penetratingly asked of all of us. Are you and I faithful to the calling of the Lord? On which side are you and I currently listed? Are you ready to inherit eternal life or are you preparing yourself to inherit eternal punishment? It's only one or the other. Which is it for you? The gospel call of invitation is extended, and if you at this moment are not ready to meet the Master in judgment, if you haven't lived wisely and circumspectly moment by moment, don't wait another moment. After all, we don't know when time's going to end, and we don't know even when death will come your way or mine. What a tragedy it would be to slip from this life, having intended to obey but never doing it. Having intended to time and again to listen to sermons and thinking, I know I need to obey the gospel, but I'll put it off till a more convenient day. You do know the more convenient day may never come. As far as we know, it never came for Agrippa in Acts 26. So today, if your heart is being tugged upon by the gospel call, if the Holy Spirit through the Word is prompting you at this moment to respond, why not do it? Brother Jeff has chosen a song of encouragement. It would be a time that we're going to sing together. And if that is a song of encouragement urging you to come forward, why not do it? The plan of salvation demands that you believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. If you have begun that walk with Him but have not been faithful, come back and beseech prayers of brethren. If we could help you in either of those ways, make sure your name is in the book of life, ready to receive heaven so you can avoid hell. It is eternal. It is everlasting. If we can help you, won't you come while together we stand and sing?